Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics, wherever you may be and however you may be joining us. Thank you for making us a part of your day. As always, this show is brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherent apologetics. Today I'm here with Dr. Paul Copan. We're going to be talking about a familiar topic if you know uh, Dr. Paul Copan. Uh, the question of, is God a moral monster? He wrote a really influential book a few years ago on that topic. Uh, if you don't know who Dr. Copan is, he got his PhD in philosophy of religion from Marquette University on the moral dimensions of Michael Martin's atheology. It'd be a really interesting topic. Um, all kinds of stuff. Dr. Copan, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to be on with you, Zach, and looking forward to, uh, yeah, my first time on it here at Apologetics. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. There's so much um, here. We're going to get going for about an hour. We're going to be talking a little bit about Old Testament slavery um, and an Old Testament violence, what we see in the Old Testament, and then we'll hit a few of your guys' questions at the end. Um, but just to start off, could you talk a little bit about, like, if no one knows who you are, Paul, like, who are you and what do you do? Well, I am a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University, uh, the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. I've been there since 2004. I have, as you said, a background in philosophy, but I also have an undergrad and graduate uh, work done in the area of biblical studies and theology. So I, in, in a lot of my work, I try to bring those two disciplines together, three disciplines actually, uh, of philosophy, theology, and biblical studies, and uh, my book has got a little monster, uh, brings those elements together. Um, I uh, am happily married, uh, have uh, six children. Uh, I have uh, also been involved in various other ministries. I've been on the pastoral staff of a church in upstate New York. I have uh, been engaged on campus ministry. And so I have uh, really enjoyed the opportunity now to be at Palm Beach Atlantic University where I have been able to do a good deal of writing and editing. I write at a popular level uh, as well as an academic level. So I work, have worked on books like, you know, the, the Moral Monster book, uh, When God Goes to Starbucks, True for You But Not for Me, uh, a little book for new philosophers, as well as books that are published uh, with uh, academic publishers like uh, Routledge and uh, and Blackwell and so forth. Uh, so so yeah, I've uh, I'm very glad to be here. And uh, oh, just incidentally, uh, for those who are interested in pursuing a master's in philosophy of religion, uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University will be starting one up in the fall of next year. So Paul Gould, my colleague, uh, who will be the director of that program. And so uh, so feel free to spread the word and uh, let us know of your interest, and we'd be happy to have you at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Mm, yeah, definitely something I'll be thinking about as I try to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Um, so obviously, you're a philosopher by training with a background in theology. You wrote, I saw your master's thesis on like the impossibility of an actual infinite regress, which is a super interesting topic, but unfortunately one that we'll have to wait for another day. Um, you kind of got drawn into this whole is God a moral monster thing. Your book was extremely impactful, it seems. So what got you like interested in this whole idea of looking at like the Old Testament God? Yeah, it wasn't as though it just began prior to, just immediately prior to writing the book, Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, this has been an area of interest since my high school days and college days. And so I, when 9-11 happened, of course, and many of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, were writing their best-selling books and really coming on strong against the 
the God of the Old Testament. Uh, they made a lot of statements about God and had a lot of caricatures uh, about the Old Testament. And so I wrote an article for the journal Philosophia Christi, published by the Evangelical Philosophical Society, in which I was addressing a lot of the slogans, a lot of the misunderstandings, a lot of the caricatures, and then that eventually developed into the uh, the Moral Monster book that I wrote. I had a lot of good in input and feedback from that article, and so those who said, hey, do more work on this, so that was how the, uh, the Moral Monster uh, book came about. Mm. Yeah, so regarding like this book like if we're gonna fly over it here and just talk about like what's the main idea and like what kind of what do you look at with this book like um what's the main thesis of is god a moral monster well i try to look at a number of the misunderstandings or difficult passages related to the old testament uh related to women slavery uh the issue of warfare strange uh, laws, arbitrary laws, harsh laws, etc. Trying to, to put them in their historical context and, uh, and offer some at least offsetting explanation. Does it fully resolve all the questions? No, but I'm at least trying to put them in their context so that we can better understand them and have a, a better grasp on what's going on in the Old Testament and, and try to read it, read it more sympathetically rather than as mo with, with modern eyes and ears uh, and not really trying to grasp what's going on uh, in a culture that is far removed from ours, both in terms of uh, the, the type of culture that it is, not to mention the, uh, the distance between us temporally. Mm. So there's two main things we're going to kind of focus on here. And the first one, um, before we get into it, I just, I think these things are probably for people listening. Like if you're online, especially in like the online atheistic realm, you'll, you'll see this idea of God's immoral monster. Primarily what I've seen with these two main areas, which are like this idea of slavery and this idea of violence um, in the Old Testament. So when we're looking at like slavery in the Old Testament, like what's kind of like your general thoughts on what's going on here? Well, there are a lot of things to be said about the issue of slavery and what is, I think, first uh, of what first needs to be understood is that when we look at, say, Old Testament slavery, the term used there is an unfortunate translation, of course. Uh, the term slave uh, is actually connected to the, the verb to work, avad, meaning uh, work. Uh, can mean serve as well, uh, as well, and, and the term work worker. Like I, I grew up in a Slavic background, so in in Russian, uh, rab uh, it means servant uh, or worker, and the the verb is rabotach. It's uh, it's a, a a word that means to work, and I think if you the the Russian captures it better than the English, uh, that there is this correlation of working. And it also has a connotation. It's a neutral. Uh, it's a neutral word, that. Uh, but it has a connotation of a, a dynamic dependency relationship that could be either positive, like the Israelites in Egypt, or, uh, or sorry, you know, the negative, the Israelites in Egypt, or positive, the Israelites coming out of the will out of the land of Egypt and working and serving under God, who has liberated them. So the same term can be used for slavery in Egypt. 
It can also be used for serving God in the wilderness. And again, just depending upon the context, it's either negative or positive or just neutral. It can be an honorific term even, uh, like Moses and Joshua are called the servant of the Lord. So clearly it's a, it's a, it's a lofty uh, title to be a servant of the Lord. Uh, also, uh, when it comes to the connotations, it's unfortunate that when we're dealing with the issue of slavery, that we, uh, we have this association of the antebellum South, colonialism, uh, the master being able to do whatever he wants with his slave, and a lot of people transfer that to the biblical text, and unfortunately, they assume that when modern translations use the term slavery, that must be the same type of thing as we have in the uh, ancient Near East with Israel. And again, this is uh, terribly unfortunate to a lot of men. So as I'm speaking to people, I try to clear away some of that misunderstanding that, uh, that what is going on in the ancient Near East and Israel in particular is a far cry from uh, what is going on in, uh, in the more modern era and the slavery that we are uh, most familiar with. And I tell people, Hello, um, can you hear me? I think he froze here for a second. Okay, I think Dr. Copan, um, he froze here. I think it's on his end from what I understand. Uh, can you guys hear me and see me already if you're listening? Hello, um, can you hear me? Uh, I think we're in a... Yeah, I do not know what happened right here, guys. So we are right here live. Um, we're just talking for a minute here. Uh, don't know what happened to Paul. He is not here, obviously. So now I am here just talking. Um, I'll try removing him and adding him briefly. Maybe that will help. Nope, he is gone. Um, he is gone. So he just left. So it's just me for a second. Um, I did not see your question yet, Aaron. Um, so be sure to put it in the live chat, and we'll definitely bring it up. Uh, so here we are. I'm sure Dr. Copan will be joining me in a second here, and we'll just be waiting for him for the moment. Uh, so here we are, just talking, guys. So Ethan, Nate, Aaron, John, the Pew, Lindsay, Dan, everyone else who's joining us, thank you for making this a part of your day um, we, as we talk about this super important topic. Uh, John, the Pew says, uh, really appreciate the book Dr. Copan wrote. With Matthew Flanagan, did God really command genocide when I read it against biblical violence? Of course, glad to have him on. Yeah, Dr. Copan, really an amazing guy. Uh, really like his stuff. Uh, and I'm kind of like trying to like double task here because I'm trying to like keep you guys like having a voice. And, um, you know, I'm trying to talk. I can't talk. Hello, Dr. Copan. Welcome Sorry back. That. Don't know what happened. <laughs> no, you're all good. It's internet you know you just never know what you can expect with the internet so where you were talking about your general thoughts um and was there anything else you wanted to add before you kind of like fell off here for a second yeah sorry about that no, no, yeah. it's all good. another another thing that i would uh, i would um you know want to bring out is that uh, if the law of Moses were adhered to, 
then we wouldn't have had the sorts of issues related to slavery in our modern day. A lot of people saying, oh, we're just following the Bible. Well, when you look at the, when you compare them, you see that there's a great difference. For one thing, uh, there was no racial uh, issue here. Uh, there was no matter of different skin color or something like that. Uh, secondly, uh, the biblical understanding uh, takes the view that all human beings are made in the image of God and that even if you were a servant, you had certain rights, that there were certain things that could be done to you. In fact, in Exodus uh, 21, a text that we'll be going over soon, mentions that if, uh, if a uh, master uh, or employer, uh, more to the point, uh, strikes his, the one who is, his, strikes his worker, the one who is depending upon him, serving him, uh, then if that person who is struck is killed, then the master uh, is, can be capitally punished, which again indicates that this is not a mere property issue, but as a human rights issue. So this is a matter of uh, treating the servant, the Israelite servant, with dignity and respect. Uh, now there are uh, there are some people say, well, look, there's one passage where the uh, where a servant is maybe uh, you know struggling and so forth, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but but even so, we need to understand that if you knocked out, if you injured your servant. Hello. I think Dr. Copan froze again for a second here. Hopefully he can come back. Uh, thank you for your question, Aaron. We will be sure to get that to get to that at the end. What's up, Finding Truth? This has been a fun start. Um, can you hear me, Dr. Copan? Okay. I'm not hearing anything on my end. It's the internet these days, you know. It's just not fun. So, uh, don't really know where to go right now. Um, I'll kind of give you my thoughts, Aaron, on your question uh, for a moment while we wait for uh, Dr. Copan to come back again. Hopefully the internet all works out. Um, yeah, and he's gone. Um, but he'll be back here in a second, I'm sure. But Aaron, your question is a really good question. So I'll give you my thoughts until he comes back. He says, would sin, suffering, death, or evil exist if God had not chosen to create? If no, then was creation immoral? Well, I mean... It would seem to me that sin wouldn't exist if we just have God um, who hasn't chosen to create. But I don't think that makes creation immoral. I think you have to look at the problem. The problem of evil is a very important problem. Uh, Dr. Copan can obviously get into this a lot better than I, I can. But the way I look at it is if there's one possible reason why God may allow evil for a, a greater good, then I think that while there may be things that are evil, it wouldn't there'd be a greater good that would come out of it. You know, it's the old question, like, do you learn by experience or by someone just telling you something? And usually as humans, we learn by experience. Um, so I don't think so. I think there's can be greater goods that come out of it. And hopefully Dr. Copan can come back in a second here, guys. But Dan, Finding Truth, Aaron, Spartan Theology, John Pugh, what's up, everyone? I am glad you guys are all here. And hopefully this internet can just like its way through and if you're listening via podcast i know there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts like why are you hearing my voice rather than like paul's welcome back again third time's the charm right yeah, sorry well we've had uh thunderstorms in our area and i think 
it may be related to that. I, I just don't know. I'm sorry about that. It's no problem. The internet can kind of be crazy from time to time. So yeah, right. I definitely had my share issues. Okay. All right. Well, that's comforting. All right. So we've mentioned that there's the skin color issue is something that is uh, a different matter altogether. Uh, we've also mentioned that the uh, that uh, that the, the servant, uh, if uh, if killed, uh, the the person who struck him, you know, could be capitally punished. Uh, we've also uh, noted that uh, even if there is a permanent injury, uh, that the per that the person who is the servant, uh, the reason he's the servant is because he's in in debt. Uh, then the one who struck him would have to let him go debt free. So we can also mention that modern slavery was founded on kidnapping, and kidnapping is something that is punishable by death in the law of Moses, and that's reiterated in. Uh, in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we also see that the, again, the reason that people become, uh, uh, you know, put, put into a servant status is because of they're, they're poor. And Israel makes provision for those who are impoverished to glean in fields that haven't been fully cut uh, or to pluck fruit from trees uh, that haven't been fully harvested and so forth, that there is provision for the Israelites. Also, uh, in terms of the harshness factor, there's another consideration that if a slave ran away from a foreign nation like Babylon uh, and wanted to settle in Israel, uh, there is a mandate to allow that runaway slave, that foreign slave, to settle in any of Israel's cities. And uh, this is in contrast to, well, of course, the Civil War era, uh, or prior to that, uh, the fugitive slave law, uh, but also in the ancient Near East, where if a slave ran away uh, from a master, went to another country, they had extradition treaties, say the Hittites and the Babylonians and so forth. They had extradition treaties to send back the runaway slave to his master. And if you didn't, if you were harboring him, uh, that was capitally punishable. Uh, so Israel has a much uh, more uh, humane approach to those who are impoverished and thus who are in this dynamic dependency relationship. And um, so anyway, there's a, there are a number of factors that we can talk about, but those are some general considerations that we should uh, bring up when we're dealing with the whole uh, slavery issue. We can talk about, you know, that's, and that's talking about the Israelite servant, and we can talk about foreign servants as well, uh, but that's uh, perhaps setting some of the groundwork for future questions. Yeah, there's a couple of passages I want to go to that will kind of address some of these situations you've been talking about. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go through two pas passages that are common in this whole Old Testament right. slavery, servitude uh, debate. And the first one right. is, I'll just kind of read it and kind of get your thoughts on it. But it's, sure. it's Exodus 21, verses 20 through 21, where it talks about when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. I'm reading from the ESV here. So what's kind of right. your thoughts on what's going on here? Well, the first thing to keep in mind here is that there is a, uh, you know, that this is the, in the context of accidental injuries. Uh, and just prior to this, we, we read about the person who is, um, uh, you know, just been injured. And there is a medical fee that has been used uh, to help this person get better. And the judge takes that, that into consideration that there is a medical fee 
that is um, that is being utilized. And this shows goodwill on the part of the person who has struck him. And in the same way, I think that that's what is going on here, that the, you know, he is his silver, could also be translated, it is his silver, uh, that is this medical fee. Uh, that if there's an accidental injury, the uh, the person who struck him pays the medical fee, uh, then this is an indication to the judge that he is, uh, this silver uh, that he's paying is something that indicates that he did not maliciously strike him. This was something that was accidental and that the judge would take this in consideration. Now, even if some people say, well, no, what? why not just translate it? He is his silver. Well, as I said, one, it's in the context of accidental injury and this medical fee has been taken care of uh, in that prior passage. And uh, Harry Hoffner, who taught at the University of Chicago, uh, maintained that this is probably carrying over into the next text that he, it could just be simply, you know, the word who, uh, you know, it's, you know, masculine uh, pronoun, you know, it simply could be, it is his silver. But even if you, if you're striking your servant and injuring him, it is, uh, it is actually counterintuitive because you're only harming your own pocketbook. You're only harming your own silver. Uh, and we need to keep in mind too, that those who were indentured servants here, uh, they are they are working for a six-year term limit, and then upon the seventh year, they are let go. So this is indentured servitude. It's not what we're talking about when it comes to uh, life on a plantation in the South where you're a lifelong slave and, uh, and basically the master can do what he wants with you. No, you had a a contract that was to be honored, and if you uh, and only voluntarily could you extend it, but you had to be let go the seventh year. In fact, uh, you know Jeremiah and other prophets, uh, Amos mention the the uh, problem of keeping slaves longer than or servants longer than this six year period, and so that was a violation of the law of Moses. Another thing to keep in mind too is this. When we're talking about the law of Moses, we're not talking about ideal legislation that this is somehow the perfect uh, law for all time, that this is universally valid and binding and that all of God's people should follow this at all times. This is something that is situated in the ancient Near East. Uh, Jesus himself talked about certain laws that were permitted because of the hardness of human hearts, Matthew 19.8. So the, the, the law assumes that people are going to sin. It assumes that there are going to be inferior structures. And what you see is the law of Moses uh, meeting people where people are. Uh, it's not as though, but it points them in a redemptive direction. It's often pointing them uh, in the direction of going back to the original chapter, the early chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, of humans being made in the image of God, fundamental equality, uh, monogamous marriage, uh, no classic, no classism or hierarchy within humanity. And so those are some of the themes that are being, uh, again, uh, emphasized in the law of Moses. Sometimes it just, you just see that there's an assumption that there's a patriarchal culture here. Well, how does God, how does Moses work with that to, uh, to stress the equality of women uh, in the midst of that kind of a patriarchal society? Uh, so we need to understand that. But even as you look at the legislation, 
uh, of, uh, of Moses in contrast to the rest of the ancient Near East. And I've got a, actually another book that I'm working on that is a, kind of like a sequel to the Moral Monster book that I've written. And it looks at the broader worldview issues that are rooted in, of course, God's redemption of Israel, bringing Israel out of Egypt and how that is to shape and inform uh, Israel's own uh, moral mindset. And so I unpack the various differences that there are between uh, ancient Israel and the ancient Near Eastern laws. Uh, and Israel's is really very much informed by how they had been delivered by the Lord bring, who brought them out of Egypt. And so therefore that was to inform them as to how they were to treat foreigners or aliens in their midst. It was to inform them uh, that there was to be a law that applied to both the alien and the Israelite in uh, in the land of, uh, you know, in the promised land and so forth. So there are a number of things that uh, I go into detail on in that uh, in that book. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's a cliffhanger here. Uh, let's talk about Leviticus 25. I think this is probably the most prominent thing uh, that I see that comes up on this whole question. So I'll just read right. verses 40 through 44 through 46, which says, As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that, that are with you, who may have been born in your land and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons as you inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but you shall not, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you should not rule over one another ruthlessly. So I think there's a couple of things that are brought up. I think most importantly is this idea that it seems like we have this like idea of like permanent slavery um, of non-Israelites and Israelite culture. So what's kind of like your thoughts as you go through this passage? Right. Well, keep in mind a few things here. Uh, the language of transaction, of acquiring, uh, bequeathing. Uh, keep in mind that the language of acquiring is the same language that is used of God who acquired the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. He purchased them, he redeemed them. It's Think of the language of our sports teams where you have an owner of a team, you have, uh, you have those who are traded uh, players, you have those who are um, you know, bought and sold uh, by various teams. We don't think, oh, that person is mere property uh, no, it's simply the language of a legal uh, transaction here. Some people say, yeah, the Israelites, we, I get that they were not uh, property, that this was an indentured servitude, that they worked for seven years, that six years they paid off their debt, and then they were free to go about uh, their lives as you know, ordinary citizens without any uh, remaining uh, debt uh, and you know, no change in their status. It was just that they were under contract. Well, in, for the foreigner who might come into Israel, maybe after war or in, uh, in difficult circumstances like Abraham going to Egypt in time of famine, etc., cetera, uh, there were various, you know, various circumstances in which uh, in, a foreigner might end up in the land of Israel. Well, we understand that in Leviticus 25, this is related to the year of Jubilee that in which the land that has been leased goes back to the original owner after 50 years. So, uh, so even if you have uh, had some financial hardships, the land would revert back to the owner. And the land 
was a gift from God to the nation of Israel that was divided up into tribes and tribal territories. And where was the foreigner to go? The foreigner couldn't own land. The foreigner would have to typically attach himself to an Israelite family. And of course, living within an Israelite home, I mean, John Golden Gay uh, writes that uh, that the who's Old Testament scholar says that to be a servant in someone's home was basically to be a part of the family. You uh, and if you lived within that sort of a setting, uh, your your food and uh, clothing, uh, your shelter and uh, your 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 employment uh, was taken care of. So there was no way in which you could own land as a as an alien or a sojourner that was the prerogative and the privilege of uh, being an israelite so that was just the condition uh in which uh, under which the israelites operated and so uh so yes it wasn't as though it was a it's a kind of a western uh idea of yeah maybe even a foreigner could own land here say in the united states it was a, it was a different way of uh, of thinking mm-hmm. and again there's a theological basis for that but let me also add this. Uh, so, so you, you know, you've got the foreigner who comes or the alien who lives in the land, attaches himself to a family. Well, again, he's still not, you know, the next generation is going to be able to own land either. So uh, that is going to be then they're going to remain within that family. So the language of being bequeathed to the next generation uh, is, is something that, you know, there is a certain sense of security and stability that comes with that. Uh, are these ideal circumstances? No. Uh, but again, it's a way of uh, showing care for the alien. Remember, just in Leviticus 19, just a few chapters earlier, there's a command to look out for and to love the alien in your midst. Mm. So uh, so here, and, and again, over 30 times you have this mention in the Old, in the Old Testament law that you know, remember that you were once aliens, same word, in the land of Egypt. And so therefore you're to look out for them. And so here, then you come across this verse and some people act as though, oh, that overturns all of those uh, you know, verses that are repeating. You were once slaves in the land of Egypt. You were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Therefore look out for those who are disadvantaged. You see over and over again, a concern, a humanitarian concern for those who could be most taken advantage of the orphan, the widow, uh, the you know the alien living in the land. So repeatedly you see that triad mentioned and to not to take advantage of those who could be most uh, easily exploited. But let me just continue on here with this passage because a lot of people stop at verse 46 and the text goes on in verse 47 of Leviticus uh, 25 to say, that if the means of a stranger or a sojourner become sufficient, in other words, those people who are living as strangers in the land, foreigners in the land, they could actually become persons who acquire sufficient wealth such that they could, and get this, they could potentially acquire an Israelite. Now, as an Israelite, a an object just a piece of property and so forth no of course not but that same transactional language is used of the israelite in this text 
for example, you know, and the goal is obviously if you have a, 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 a relative who could be your kinsman, a redeemer, who could buy you out of that debt, you wouldn't have to live under the, uh, under the auspices of this foreigner, uh, that that would be optimal. And so it says, you know, goes on in verse 50 to say that the, uh, it says that he then, this Israelite, um, with his um, with his purchaser shall calculate from him or the, the foreigner will calculate uh, whoever's being redeemed um, you know, will calculate the amount uh, and so forth and so uh, so this person this Israelite the same term that's used of acquiring the foreigner uh, the alien is now being used of the Israelite. And so if you're talking about this being the mere object uh, or an objectification of the foreigner, well, no, you actually have it here of the Israelite. But again, it's a transactional language. And again, that same verb, kana, is used uh, to acquire, is used of the Israelites as God redeemed them and brought them out of the land of Egypt in, uh, in uh, Exodus 15, 16. So, so again, I think that the we can you mentioned some of these things to kind of offset that language of, oh, that's mere property and say, no, there's actually a little bit more going on here than we may realize. Optimal circumstances, no. But again, there is a, a very strong emphasis on humanitarian, con mm. humanitarian concern, concern for the for and love for the foreigner or the alien in your midst. And that language of acquisition, uh, that seeming property language is also used to the Israelite. And clearly we're not talking about the Israelites being mere property or something like that. So, so those are a few things that I think are helpful in offsetting some of the uh, challenges that uh, critics will raise about a text like this. Mm, thank you. Uh, so let's talk about like Old Testament violence for a little bit, because I think for some people, maybe the first time, uh, they read through the Old Testament, they may be a little bit surprised to see maybe God saying, go and take out these people or things like that. So when we look at like this idea of like God seemingly, you know, some people will go to the extreme of saying commanding something like maybe like genocide um, right. very far. Like, how do we look at this from like, does this would this make God like a moral monster? Like, how do we look at these passages in general? Right. There are uh, certainly challenging passages, and I don't want to diminish the reality of some of those challenges. But as I have, you know, the more I read, the more I see that there is more going on in, in and behind these texts than a lot of people realize. Uh, as you keep reading some of those texts where it says, oh, those people were utterly destroyed, uh, well, it's actually not the, that that same that kind of scenario in an actual fact uh, that you have people who it says that they've been utterly destroyed, that there were no survivors. And then they appear sometimes a verse later. They appear in the next chapter or a few chapters later. And, you know, like I mentioned in, uh, for example, in uh, Judges chapter one, mention of the Jebusites, those who live in, in Jerusalem, uh, that they. Uh, that they were utterly destroyed, the city was burned, and so forth. A few verses later, those Jebusites, it says that they, the, they, they could not, the Benjamites could not drive them out. In fact, they are there till this day. Well, which is it? Well, if you understand that this is 
part of the genre of the ancient Near East where you have, again, you see it in the literature of the various war texts of the, uh, the Egyptians or the Assyrians and so forth, where they have language that says, we utterly destroyed them, we turned them to ash, there were no survivors and so forth. Uh, the history, the history uh, tells us otherwise, that you know, there are actually many survivors. For example, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, the Ramses III said that he had destroyed the Philistine peoples, the sea peoples, uh, and that they were, they were basically as nothing. Well, that's the language of hyperbole. But as it turns out, those Philistines, the sea peoples, actually ended up later colonizing the eastern part of Egypt. So even though Pharaoh said they were as nothing, we totally destroyed them, there is a significant, so it's kind of like a, a quagmire. He may have won a technical victory, but in the end, he lost a lot of troops, lost a lot of power. And then, uh, you know, in the next generation, those sea peoples ended up actually colonizing a portion of Eastern Egypt. So you see that kind of language over and over again. And as you read the scriptures, and I've talked about this with Matt Flanagan, my co-author, when we did our book, Did God Really Command Genocide? Putting in parallel passages that look like there are no survivors, and then we have in a parallel column that those same cities, those same events have lots of survivors that, that linger. And so I think it's best to understand that kind of language as referring to hyperbole, that there's a lot of exaggeration going on. Uh, in a recent book by John and Harvey Walton uh, on the lost world of the Israelite conquest, uh, they talk about this language of utterly destroy, you know, that uh, the, the term is haram, uh, utterly destroy, or the term harem, uh, utter destruction. Uh, they, they argue that it's been mistranslated. Uh, you have the term that is applied, for example, at the end of Leviticus uh, in, in tw chapter 27, where you have a servant or an animal uh, or even a field that is cherem, that is, you know, you know, set apart. Uh, you know, and again, it's not as though the field is somehow burned or scorched uh, or the animal is killed or the person is who is pronounced haram is, uh, is killed. Uh, rather, there is a removal from ordinary use to uh, to a, a uh, kind of a sanctified use related to the temple, like serving uh, the Levites or the priests. Uh, so it's not as though that person is killed, that person is removed from ordinary use. And so the Waltons argue that this term has to do with identity removal. And they use the example of Nazi Germany, where they talk about how after the Second World War, the Allied powers uh, destroyed all of the symbols related to Nazism. They, they tore down the monuments. They removed the hierarchical structure of Nazism. And yes, some who resisted were killed. The, the leaders were, just, were executed. Uh, but by and large, the German people remained. But with, without that Nazi identity, in place, and and that th they say that this kind of like the Canaanite religions and so forth, that was the ultimate goal to remove that kind of religious identity. If they could, that could be removed. If they sided with the the true people of God and identified with 
him like Rahab and uh, strangers in Joshua chapter 8 did at the reading of the law and others, the Gibeonites even, that there was that opportunity to identify with the people of God, to abandon their previous identity. And uh, and so to, uh, to drive out the people was the primary goal, but if people stayed around, they could, it's potential for them to abandon their previous allegiances and to identify with the one uh, true God. And there, and, and so, but God was concerned about Israel's not losing its own identity in all of this. And so that's why you see a very severe command related to the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. Otherwise, the mission and identity of Israel itself could be corrupted. Mm. Yeah, there's so many insightful points that you bring up here, and it's amazing how we're like 40 minutes in already. There's just there's so much that can be talked about. Uh, we'll go to one more kind of like general question, and we'll hit some live questions. There's got lots of stuff in the chat. Uh, probably, unfortunately, we probably won't be able to get to all of it. But so I think one of the most common questions is if we have this like all powerful, all knowing, all loving God, um, why would why do we see all this like violence and servitude slash slavery in the Old Testament? Like, why wouldn't God just like say this is wrong and people would follow him? Like, why don't we see that in the Old Testament? Well, it's uh, the rabbi and medical doctor and philosopher um, Moses Maimonides said that to change a people suddenly that you know think about patriarchy, think about uh, think about a maybe a violence prone culture. You think of a culture that is very much concerned with uh, with tribal identity and so forth. Uh, you try to take a people, a, a mindset like that, and then maybe just kind of legislate new laws and so forth. I'm not saying that legislation can't maybe highlight certain priorities and so on. But to think that somehow legislation can change people's hearts, can change their mindsets overnight, is just an unrealistic expectation. Mm. Uh, think of the, the kind of change that takes place when it comes to uh, maybe racial attitudes or sexist attitudes or that, that sort of a thing. You know, that often takes a, a good period of time before those attitudes begin to change. So to, you know, for God to say, I'm going to change this culture suddenly. And what is he going to remove the, the memories that people have of their previous culture and infuse them with new thoughts, new values, new attitudes and so forth. Now, certainly uh, regeneration can do a lot of that kind of a changing. And in many ways, God is doing that by acting, uh, by intervening and so forth. But, uh, you know, it, it's as though only a handful of people actually latch on to that in ancient Israel. And that's why you have Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talking about that, you know, the, the many people who end up being judged by God. And it's only the, you know, kind of the remnant, the, the few and faithful who uh, remain, who are trying to follow God faithfully. So it, it, that's the sort of thing that takes a great period of time. In fact, uh, one of the one of the projects that I've worked on in the last few years has been the impact that the Christian faith has had over history. And it has been an incremental one, but it began obviously with Jesus uh, who comes and 
affirms the the, the full equality of women, uh, you know, and and again carrying over into say slaves who uh, realize that they could have identity and dignity in Christ, who uh, again makes all people equal, uh, that uh, that there is neither slave nor free in the administration of Jesus and so forth. So really subverting the priorities of the Roman Empire. And as you go along, you see that the Christian faith through people, faithful people in society, as they live out their lives, as they seek to press for moral reforms, uh, you know, in you know, under Constantine and uh, and beyond, you start to see attitudes changing. You see even you know education. You see uh, you know public education for all people, not just the elites. You know they had that in China, uh, but not public education for all people. You had technology that took the burdens off of those who are typically slaves or coolies, and actually relieved human beings of those uh, um, those remarkable burdens and technology took a lot of those burdens and again that's the gift of the judeo-christian uh, ethic and and uh, so i document all of these sorts of things and so that christians have been at the forefront of uh, of of abolition uh, of slavery of uh, you know they've abolished apartheid you know you know you know apartheid the, the christian impulse uh, you know of equality has has been behind that moral reform also the uh, you know uh, widow burning in India or foot binding in China or prepubescent marriage in in certain cultures that Christian missionaries have actually been at the forefront of that and they have actually injected they injected themselves between the colonial powers and the indigenous peoples to press for equality before the law for both sides rather than a one-sided uh, system of justice so again, I've done a lot of writing on this. I could go on and on. Uh, and there are many, there are plenty of uh, even atheist scholars and secular scholars who affirm this. Jürgen Habermas, uh, um, uh, Tom Holland, a British historian, uh, Neil Ferguson, another British historian, who document this, uh, this, you know, this, the strong foundation that the Jewish Christian faith had that brought about all of these sorts of reforms and, and, and democracy and human rights and so forth. So, uh, there you have it. But again, that's the sort of thing that, that is incremental. It doesn't just happen suddenly. Yeah, and I'd encourage everyone to check out uh, Paul's book on Is God a Moral Monster and the other work on this topic, because there's only so much you can cover in a 60-minute YouTube interview. Uh, but here we are. We're going to go to a few questions here. Um, we'll try to get through as many as we can in these next 15 minutes, but we'll see what we can get through. Uh, first question is from Skylar Fiction. He says, um, Dr. John Collins would argue that 1 Samuel 15 is not hyperbolic um, in language. And he's wondering your thoughts. And if you're listening, I think it, he's referring to um, about Agag and this Agog and the sword and stuff. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, uh, Paul. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I would point people, if you want a very strong defense of the hyperbolic interpretation of these texts, uh, you can look at a book by, uh, by uh, Gordon West, and William Webb. It's called Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric. And it looks at these very te various texts and argues for a, a you know, very strongly for a hyperbolic uh, you know, argument. It looks at the scholarship on the other side that says, no, it's not hyperbolic and so forth. Well, one reason to take the first Samuel 15, the, the Amalekite uh, text as being hyperbolic is that the saint that it looks like if Saul has done his job and the narrator says that Saul utterly destroyed the Amalekites, 
That's what the narrator tells us. Well, then we read later on at the in the latter chapters of that same book, 1 Samuel 28 through 30, that David is fighting against the Amalekites and fights in the same vast region that Saul fought. And he fights against the Amalekites and 400 of the army of, you know, of the Amalekites end up fleeing on camels. Um, you also have, you know, I, I would also note this, that the, the, the particular um, language that is being used in 1 Samuel 15, uh, it's referring to a certain pitched battle that has been there. Uh, and, uh, and, and it seems to be you know, kind of a, a limited uh, sort of pitched battle, but yet the language of utterly destroying the Amalekites is, is there. Um, also, I would add this too. For, for what it's worth, uh, that the language of uh, hyper, in addition to the language of hyperbole, in chapter 14, verse 48, the Amalekites had been engaged in raids against the Israelites. So it wasn't as though this was somehow unprovoked. Uh, the Amalekites had been doing their own damage. Uh, and again, had been, you know, think when you think of the Amalekites, think Nazis, as, uh, as David Lamb, uh, the Old Testament scholar, says, uh, these aren't kind of your people who are minding their own business. They actually are working toward the eradication of the Israelites. And so there is, a, there is this uh, pronounced lingering hostility that has gone on since Exodus 17, when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites after they had crossed the Red Sea and were weary and, uh, and, and not prepared for war. So, so those are a few things that I would add. Also take a look at the book, not just the Bloody Brutal and Barbaric book, but also look at the book by John and Harvey Walton, who also look at this passage and, uh, and, and they, they take the hyperbolic view, uh, um, but, uh, and, and, they, and they give a defense for it, but they also talk about that term, utterly destroy, which should not be rendered uh, you know, utterly destroy because that term is used, uh, but in the end, a lot of people end up not being destroyed. Uh, in fact, God himself says in Jeremiah uh, you know, that you know, 25, 9 through 11, that he is going to destroy utterly destroy, if that's how you're, uh, the, the people of Judah uh, under the Babylonians, and that all that its cities will be left in everlasting desolation. Well, that was only 70 years, and obviously Judah uh, did not lose its, uh, did, not, um, did not end uh, its existence, but its identity was certainly broken. Uh, you know, its religious, political, um, social identity certainly uh, certainly dismembered uh, during that time of exile. So I think that that's really what gets at the heart of the issue. Mm. Well, thank you for your question, and thank you uh, for the Super Chat, Scully. A really insightful question there. Um, the next one's a Super Chat from Fredo Sarabaya. Thank you. Uh, this is a really good question because this has caused all sorts of uh, heresy among early Christians. And um, Did the Old Testament slash New, New Covenant change how God's interpreted? So I think it's like, you, you know, people say you have the God of love in the New Testament, and you have this like more harsh God in the Old Testament. Yeah. In fact, as I said, stay tuned uh, on my sequel book, uh, because I'm going to be talking about this very theme on the Old Testament and the New Testament. Does Do things get somehow less harsh in the New Testament. Um, and what I argue is that there is a very strong continuity. Uh, Paul said in Romans eleven twenty two, he said, behold, the kindness and severity of God. 
uh, that uh, that God's severity is not diminished just because Jesus shows up shows up on the scene. Think about Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple. Uh, think about the uh, slaying of Ananias and Sapphira, or Elymas, who was struck in chapter uh, Acts thirteen, who was struck blind. It says by the hand of the Lord. Uh, those who are misusing the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, some of them have become sick and even fallen asleep. In fact, Jesus himself, some people say Jesus was a pacifist. Well, actually not. Um, in Jude 5, the verse re is rendered, you know, this is Jude, again, Judas uh, or Judah, uh, is the, is the half-brother of Jesus who is writing this. And he says in verse five, and this is according to the best manuscripts, it says that Jesus, after having delivered the people out of Egypt, destroyed those who disobeyed. So here, this is Jesus connected to destruction. The same sort of language is used uh, you know, of literal physical death uh, of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, referring to Jezebel, uh, this false prophetess, and Jesus saying that he cast her on a bed of sickness, so he made her sick uh, in hopes that she would repent. And Jesus says, again, the one who said, turn the other cheek and so forth, uh, said that he would strike dead her followers. So, and again, it's not some sort of a spiritual somehow death or cessation of existence, uh, this is a physical death that Jesus himself would bring about, just as he did, you know, brought this woman Jezebel to physical sickness. Uh, so, so again, you have Jesus engaging in very severe actions here, and we read about the wrath of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Uh, and if you're interested in reading about this, I, I do challenge, and this is part of the uh, the undertaking of my next book. Uh, that, again, is going to come out with Baker. Uh, but I, I challenge some of the work of Greg Boyd, uh, who basically takes the view that God couldn't have commanded the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites because that was just Moses, uh, who was violence prone and fallen and didn't get it right. So when it says, thus says the Lord, don't believe it, Greg Boyd is saying, it's actually, thus says Moses. Uh, because Jesus could never do that. Well, we read in Jude 5 that Jesus, uh, you know, it says he struck them down. <laughs> he struck them dead. He destroyed them uh, because of their disobedience in the wilderness. So so there is that kind of language that's used. And uh, I think Greg Boyd gets a lot of things right about even things like capital punishment, that God couldn't have commanded that. Well, Jesus in, you know, talks about you know, the, is the Israelites uh, who are, you know, the Pharisees who are rejecting the word or the commandment of God in specific relation, Matthew 15, in relation to capital punishment. Peter uh, in Acts 3.23 talks about the, if the prophet, the messianic prophet who was to come, Jesus, if he was not going, if you did, if they, he was not going to be believed, it says, then the one who doesn't listen to him is going to be destroyed. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, chapter 10, uh, chapter 12, talks about though if, if those people who were who under the law of Moses uh, you know, were, were punished justly, how much more severe would the punishment be for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? So there is a severity that is there. But we also need to understand that this, this, this um, kindness and severity of God, you know, if we are embracing Christ, if we are seeking to follow his ways, if we're taking his yoke upon us and so forth, we don't need to lead, lead a life of fear 
or fearfulness and, and, and so forth because we have been accepted by God in the beloved. And so we don't have to live in, in, in fear or terror because that perfect love casts out fear. And so we can, again, talk about that more uh, uh, down the road, but uh, maybe we should go on to the next question. for Yeah, you. there's so much that can be said. Another um, question here from C. Fredo. Really good questions here. Thank you for the super chat. He says, uh, can moral monsters convince everyone he did no wrong? So I think it's this idea that uh, maybe God is this evil being and he's just trying to convince everyone that he didn't do wrong. Well, it's helpful to distinguish between hard commands or difficult commands and impossible commands. Uh, there are some things that God could not command. For example, the practice of infant sacrifice. God says uh, in the book of Jeremiah, in a couple of places, he says that he didn't command it, nor did it even enter his mind. Well, what does that mean? Well, in other words, it doesn't mean that God didn't know it was going to, the practice was going to occur. But what is, what we see happening here is that God is saying, this is so far removed from my own goodness that it's as though I, I couldn't even, that idea could never even come to my mind. Uh, we also read in the scriptures that there are certain things that God can't do, that it's impossible for God to lie, for example, that God is going to keep his word and so forth. Um, and there are, you know, I would, I would make a distinction between a God who, uh, you know, who commands difficult things and impossible things. Uh, if God commanded something that was intrinsically evil, then that that being you know would not be worthy of worship. It's sort of like God, uh, you know, not being able, you know, that God somehow could not exist. Mm -hmm. No, God by definition necessarily exists, and mm -hmm. God by definition is good and worthy of worship. But God is also the cosmic authority, and that there are some things that will go beyond what we can understand. Uh, and so, and we can expect that with a cosmic authority who will challenge our own moral understanding at certain points and, and basically say, trust me on this. But he gives us enough to go on to reassure us that this God who can deal severely with people is also the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and whose promises toward us are yes and amen. And that if God is willing to give of himself through Jesus Christ, who voluntarily lays down his own life for us, then we can have a, an understanding that God is for us and not against us, that God desires for all to, uh, to repent and not to perish, that God desires for all to be saved and so forth. So, we don't so, so there are enough indicators along the way that remind us that uh, yes, with the with with the corrupt, with the uh, with those who are evil, God will deal very severely, and so we, we need to remember that God doesn't uh, does does not ignore uh, justice. But there is a time when God says enough is enough. Mm. Thank you so much. We'll squeeze one last question into here. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to too much more. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Um, from Sky again, thank you for the super chat. He said, uh, for you, Paul, would you be interested in joining Dr. Josh Bowen and I for an interview sometime on the Digital Hammurabi channel sometime? Dr. Josh Bowen is amazing. And I don't know if you know who Dr. Josh is, but he's a really, he's a good, he's a really nice guy. He's agnostic or an atheist. I don't know exactly where he's on that. He's a seriologist, so I don't know what you're sure. talking about. 
Yeah, and I told him, I said, sure, I'd love to come on your show, and I'm uh, just waiting to hear back from him. So just send me a note, Josh, and uh, we'll we'll work something out, okay? It's all Josh's fault, so we'll just blame it on him. <laughs> <laughs> Josh is there. I really like Josh. He's a great yeah, guy. Yeah, no, he's has a very gracious manner. I did see a debate that he had with Michael Brown, and or a discussion, really, is very, very friendly discussion on the issue of slavery. It's very, very, very well done. So, sure, we can talk about that. Yeah, and he's told me before he does not like debates. He just likes kind of like civil discussion. So, yeah, that's that's my mentality as well. So it, it should be good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Paul, I thank you so much for the great conversation. There's so much here. I'd encourage everyone listening. Unfortunately, we didn't get to everything, but a lot of this stuff that we've you guys have been asking and we talked about is in his book is got a moral monster and the sequel coming out very soon. So, looking forward to that. Uh, thank you, Paul, for joining me today. Thanks so much. And I would just add, too, that there is a, a book in the middle there that Math, Matthew Flanagan and I wrote that deals with violence in the Old Testament. Uh, did God really command genocide? So I'd really encourage you all to take a look at that as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for tuning in, everyone. This is Adhering Apologetics. If you enjoyed the show, you can support the show at patreon.com slash Adhering Apologetics or through YouTube memberships or Super Chats. Uh, so much good stuff. Once again, thank you, Paul, for a great conversation.